from Luminary and Built It Productions. It's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Ken Chenault, former CEO of American Express. American Express was a predominantly white company. My first morning, I remember sitting in the lobby and a senior person came over and said to me, what are you doing here? And I said, this is my first day at American Express. And he said, really, let me check. How Ken Chenault helped transform American Express from a traveler's checks company into a credit card powerhouse, all while breaking barriers as one of the few black CEOs in America. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. American Express got its name from the nature of its business. Back in 1850, when it was launched, it was an express mail service. The guys who started it were Henry Wells and William Fargo. And if that sounds familiar, it should, because they also created Wells Fargo. But it wasn't until 1891 when American Express transformed into a financial services company. That year, they introduced traveler's checks to the world. And that single innovation turned the company into a powerhouse. Traveler's checks made it much easier for people to travel abroad without cash. And for most of the 20th century, traveler's checks were the company's core business. But by the late 1970s, credit cards started to gain a lot of traction. And Ken Chenault was one of the early disruptors of the company who pushed for a pivot away from traveler's checks to double down on cards. And for much of the 1980s and even 1990s, Ken spent his career expanding the company's global reach until he himself became its top leader in 2001. He wasn't just the first African-American CEO at Amex. Ken was also one of the very few African-American CEOs among the Fortune 500. Ken Chenault grew up in Nassau County on Long Island. His dad was a dentist and his mom was a dental hygienist. He was born just a few years before the landmark Brown versus Board of Education case outlawed racial segregation in public schools across the U.S. Well, I think what was very important for me at that time, one of my close friends, Ted Wells, mm. often talked about the fact that we were Brown babies, meaning we were beneficiaries of Brown v. Board of Education. Mm. I was born in 1951. Ted, I think, was born in 1949, and we were able to have opportunities that, frankly, had been denied people who had gone before us. Hmm. 
And one of the things that my parents really focused on was that we needed to be very, very aware of racism, very proud of our heritage. We should absolutely fight for our rights and fight for the rights of other people who were disadvantaged. And one of the mantras of my father was focus on what you can control. And the one thing you can control is your performance. That was something that I think about all the time. Hmm. I think you clearly have to fight against things you can't control. But I really do believe in self-empowerment and the power of an individual being focused. However, growing up as a black person in America in the 50s and the 60s, there were countless incidents that I faced personally and my family faced. Hmm. Fortunately, I had two parents who could really counsel me. I'll give you one example. I was on a on a bus going to school. I was probably nine years old. I was talking to a few other students on the bus, and a student came over to me and said, so you're a nigger. And I just froze. And I said, well, you're a white cracker. <laughs> One of the things my parents had said is you want to treat everyone with respect. But if someone tries to belittle you, analyze the situation, which I had to do very quickly, but sometimes you respond in like kind. <laughs> and this little boy was totally mortified. He actually broke out in tears. Uh, as a parent of a child of color, you have to educate them to the challenges that they're going to face and how they need to act in different situations. Wow. I mean, it sounds like the way your parents kind of talked to you about conflict was there are things you can control and things you can't, but one thing you can control is your reaction? Correct. And what was important is, is the importance of having self-control. And self-control doesn't mean you don't evidence anger, uh, that uh, you simply accept what you are handed, but it does mean that as much as possible, you really want to be in control of the situation. And what I found in my personal life and business life, having that self-control is very, very important and is, in fact, something that gives you a major advantage. Hmm. Um, you went on to study at, at Bowdoin College in Maine, and then I guess you went, you went sort of pretty much right into law school um, a after that. Yeah, Bowdoin was uh, a terrific experience. Going to college in the 70s, obviously with the Vietnam War, uh, with the civil rights movement, with the emergence of black power, that was an incredible time for me. And similar to many African-Americans who were in college at that time, we were amongst the first relatively large group uh, 
that was attending a uh, majority white college. So that experience, I think, was a very powerful experience. It w- they, those were tumultuous times. But I think going through the 70s gave me a sensibility and an understanding of the importance of addressing social issues. And my impetus to go to law school was really to be a civil rights lawyer. And the farthest thing from my mind was that I would go into business. Your kind of early academic push and I guess, um, direction was to become a civil rights attorney. That was what you were hoping to be to, to do with your life? It was that I had actually an interest in politics and I thought that was a place where I could have an impact. Uh, the headmaster of my school took a very strong interest in me and he was one who my freshman year, he said, I think you're really bright. I think you're very talented. I think you could be an incredible leader, but you've got to really apply yourself consistently, hmm. not at what you just like to do. And he started talking to me about the fact that I could be a leader. And then that evolved to you could go into politics. And the key thing there for me was this awakening to the fact that people thought I had the attributes and the capabilities to be a leader. That was incredibly fortifying for me and gave me something to aspire to. And I think that's critical for anyone is that you need aspirations much bigger than day-to-day objectives that you might set. When you graduated from law school, um, was it your intention still at that point to to do civil rights work? Because I know you went right to a law firm in New York, right. but what was your idea? Well, let me let me do this for a couple of years, and then I'll go do the thing that really you know that's really meaningful to me. Yeah, what I thought as I looked at the path of lawyers who went into civil rights law, I saw that they went to an established law firm for two or three mm-hmm. years. And then they entered the public service world. So I went to a law firm, and actually it was going fine. I had some friends who were at Bain & Company. My wife, Kathy, and I went up to Boston. We were newly married, and it was a free weekend. Mm -hmm. And uh, what impressed me was I really felt this energy in the place and the firm. It had a real startup feel because it, in fact, was a startup on a relative basis in the consulting world. Mm-hmm. And and I went there more because of a feeling that uh, these were really dynamic, exciting people. And then I had started to think about what was the next frontier of the civil rights movement? And for me, what I started to feel was that business and law had to go through more dramatic change because the reality is that the presence of African Americans in business was minimal. Hmm. 
And I also felt businesses really impact people's lives in pretty fundamental ways. Hmm. And what I thought in going to Bain is I would learn about business, but I would actually focus on starting my own business Hmm. or acquiring a company. So the last thought in my mind was that I would go to a large company. I just thought that a large company would really not be accepting of me. Hmm. And then I was contacted by an executive recruiter who told me that American Express was looking for two or three people in strategic planning. And I had just read an article about American Express doing a joint venture with Warner Cable. And that was viewed as a new frontier. And um, the person who... I interviewed with who was forming the group was Lou Gerstner. Wow. Went on to become CEO of IBM. and That's right. And Lou became a mentor uh, to me and someone that I've stayed close to and am close to to this day. But one of the things that Lou said to me that was really impactful is I want a few catalytic agents of change. Hmm. And that phrase has always stuck with me because uh, being a catalytic agent of change was really important to me. And the other thing that Lou said to me is I said to Lou, I'm not sure I really will fit in a large company. (laughs) And Lou said to me, you should come here and if you're really good, I will recommend you for any opportunity you want to pursue. Why did you think that you wouldn't fit into a bigger organization? So I think the reality is American Express, as with many blue chip companies, was a predominantly white company. And the question for me was, would I be given the opportunity to excel? Because I certainly didn't have many role models that I could point to in large companies who looked like me who, in fact, had excelled. Yeah. Uh, There were no African-Americans at that time who were CEOs or CFOs or CMOs. So it was was a, a new environment. That said, from the history of the civil rights movement, what I started to realize is this was an opportunity and an obstacle that was meant to be overcome. Hmm. And uh, one of my favorite quotes from Nelson Mandela is that it always seems impossible until it's done. And that's from a man who it was impossible to conceive that he would go from jail cell to president of South Africa. So I I think that was a motivation to me that it was a challenge to be overcome. Hmm. Did you say that to to Lou? I mean, were you able to be that, that no. forthright with him at the time? No, I didn't phrase it in racial terms. I just said, I just don't know how I would do in a large right. company. And what was interesting, my first day, first morning, I came into a position above an entry-level position of someone coming out of business school. Mm. Because of my experience at Bain, 
they uh, had me as a uh, director. So I was clearly in lower middle management. But I remember sitting in the lobby uh, waiting for someone to come out, and a senior person came over and said to me in pretty menacing terms, what are you doing here? Wow. And I said, this is my first day at American Express. And he said, really, let me check. Wow. So that was my introduction. But all that said, what I think is very important is I had, as it turned out, a tremendous set of opportunities at American Express. And Lou Gerstner was viewed incredibly positively, but he was also viewed as a very tough and demanding uh, boss. And the fact that I did well with him enhanced my credibility, but I would say it'd be very clear that I know that Lou and others had to intervene with other senior people at times who clearly would not have advanced me Hmm. because of my race. So 1981, you don't, I mean, how do you remember kind of just coping with that personally, you know, because for anybody, especially a young person, because you were still a young man, I mean, you're in your late 20s and starting a career and that can be rattling for anyone. And here you are facing that more than just uh, on the rare occasion. I mean, how did you sort of internalize that and cope with it and just keep moving forward? I was very fortunate that I had parents who uh, overcame obstacles, went to college. uh, And so my experience is not different from uh, literally hundreds of thousands of African-Americans that have had to break a barrier. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, one of the things we call it, it's the black tax. Yeah. And uh, that's not something we should accept. But at the end of the day, what I was not prepared to do was to allow those obstacles to hold me back. But because of Brown v. Board, because of the civil rights laws, I was being given the opportunity And I will tell you, I don't know how I would have handled psychologically the environment pre-Brown v. Board of Education. Those are incredible heroes that need to be even more celebrated. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. 
for Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. So you get to Amex. Obviously, Lou sees something in you and sees in you a pretty um, successful future there. But meantime, there are other executives who don't who don't see that. Did you feel in those first few years when you were there that – I don't know. You weren't going to be included in the, you know, the golf rounds or included in the lunches or was there like a click of your cohort that that you didn't make you feel like you were part of them? You know, here's the deal. I was not trying to become CEO of the company. Hmm. Remember, I I thought after 10 years I said I guess I'm going to be here for a while. <laughs> yeah, right. But the first few years I thought I'm going to be here for a few years and then I'm going to do my own thing. Right. You did and not see yourself as a lifer when you got there in 1981, No, right? okay. I didn't yeah. see myself yeah. as a lifer. I didn't have an aspiration to be CEO of the company. And in retrospect, that gave me a level of comfort that my life wasn't tied into it. And what I would say is the majority of people in top management were very receptive to me. There were a few who were not. But what was important is I really focused on driving outcomes, on developing people. And frankly, I didn't socialize hmm. that much outside the office. Yeah. So 1981, you don't, you don't imagine yourself making this your life's career. Um, no. But uh, at some point, obviously, you, you must have woken up and realized that you were, you were being promoted to, to various positions of authority higher and higher, um, taking on more responsibility. At what point did you kind of realize, well, maybe actually I could be CEO of this, this place one day? Well, it's interesting. Uh, one of the first businesses I ran was a business selling merchandise through the mail that – we were able to grow into a very substantial and, business. And just to be clear, you were selling like luggage tags and clocks. Well, luggage right? tags, luggage, electronics, jewelry. Two card holders through catalogs? Toys, absolutely. So the, the, and the it, card holder would get a catalog from American Express. And then, right. And it's amazing that that was a business because that's not a – Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, <laughs> and statement stuffers. We actually grew it – to over $600 million in sales and, and you, in two and a half years. When you years. say statement stuffers, like advertising from, you know, an offers inside the statements? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. It was one of the most successful direct marketing businesses. Wow. And I, in fact, tried to buy the business from the company. You wanted to buy because you thought I could spin this off and then I could run my own business. Yeah. Right. You think about 
Not that I would have necessarily had the vision of Amazon, but yeah, if that had moved with the internet, uh, yeah, I could think it could have been business. a great business. Things worked out all right for me. I'm not complaining. <laughs> uh, but I was able to put together a very, very attractive proposal, and I got it through most of the levels. And uh, then it came to Lou Gerstner, and uh, he turned me down. And I was really upset. He turned you down for? He said, you, I'm not going to allow you to buy the company. The proposal that I'd gotten people to agree to is I would be able to use the American Express brand for 10 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would have access to the list. Uh, the list of, uh, of Amex cardholders. That's right. And Lou said, you know, that's a strategic asset. I'm not going to let you have it. And... I was really, really upset. Yeah. And then he said, on top of that, Ken, I'm moving you into the court business. And I said, Lou, I don't want to go in the court Hmm. business. And he said, well, let me sort of explain. uh, This is what I want you to do. And Lou also said to me, I think you can really rise in this company. And I think you could one day run this company, and you're, there's no way you're going to be able to do that without coming into the card business. It's really interesting how um, you know failure and uh, you know what seems like bad luck at the time was actually a hidden blessing, right? Because you you wanted to buy that company and spin it out, and I'm sure you were really frustrated and upset about it at the time. But I will tell you, I was emotionally devastated. Hmm. And I was a pretty resilient person, uh, but it took me a month or two to really get out of a funk because I saw my whole world was I really had this vision that I could create this direct marketing powerhouse. Yeah. And this was a dream, and Lou and the company were taking away this dream, and I just saw that I'd be stifled. And I think the important point here is that you have to deal with setbacks, but you also have to step back and really analyze the opportunity. And then the person or persons extending you the opportunity, do you trust them? Do they have your best interests at heart? Mm. And what I felt is that, Lou, I could understand you got to put yourself in the other person's position as much as I wanted this. I had to admit that Lou's focus on the assets, uh, the brand, which is incredibly valuable, and the data and the card member access, I had to admit intellectually he had a valid argument. Hmm. And at the same time, uh, I trusted that he had my best interest from a career standpoint. But Life and your career is generally not a straight line. And sometimes for people, if it's too straight a line, they have a pretty steep fall. Hmm. Okay, so so I want to fast forward a little bit because I know you've been involved in, in the travel business and that, and that became a huge part of, of Amex. And we tend to think of, of course, of Amex as a credit card company, but really the, the travel services were huge. Um, and then I, you get into the card business. And then 2001, you are named CEO. But I think... I think it was like three or four months later that that nine eleven happened. Not it wasn't just nine eleven, but Amex headquarters were directly across the street from from the World Trade Center. Um, were, were you there that day in the building? 
I was not in the building. I was actually in Salt Lake City. I was visiting uh, one of our service centers. Uh, I was in my hotel room, and uh, I was on a conference call with a team of American Express people who were in a conference room on the 51st floor overlooking the World Trade Center. Hmm. And I had uh, the TV on, the sound off, and I saw the plane hit the building and the screams on the phone from the conference room. And uh, it was, uh, and then obviously everyone scattered. And we lost 11 of our colleagues who were in the North Tower of the World Trade Center, which I did not know that at the time. I didn't know what was happening. I couldn't communicate with the team for a few hours. And then, fortunately, I was able to get some of uh, my top leadership team together. And I instructed people, one, to find out the whereabouts of all of our people in the tri-state area to account for their safety and to help them out. Second was to make sure we were helping our customers as well as our non-customers all over the world uh, because we got a report, obviously, Mm. of what was happening from a travel uh, standpoint. And third, very practically, to start looking for temporary real estate space because it looked like we were going to be out of our building for several months. You were, I mean, your building was badly damaged. We had uh, 11 floors of the building were damaged. Uh, we, we could not inhabit the building uh, because of the damage. And um, I was able to go back to New York uh, within two days. But as you might know, Guy, the the impact on the travel industry and the card business yeah. was very severe. Uh, travel volumes dropped significantly, our billings dropped significantly. Then we obviously had our 11 colleagues who perished. And so one of the first things I did was to uh, visit with as many of the families as I could and try to offer some comfort to them. And then after uh, two weeks, I realized that and felt I needed to speak to as many people in person. I did a number of video conferences and teleconferences, but we rented out Madison Square Garden and had, frankly, uh, there was no script. I just spoke from the heart Hmm. of, uh, one, trying to communicate how much I cared about them, uh, uh, to express uh, our deepest sympathies to the families of our colleagues that that perish. Yeah. And what I said to them is American Express was really not about the building. It was about our people. Mm. And our people were really dedicated and committed to service. And I was confident with them that we would overcome the challenges. Which, uh, you know, obviously you did. Um in the period um, after 9-11, there were some economic headwinds. Um, right. Uh, you sort of really begin to face, like many, most if not all companies, certainly financial companies, um, 
enormous challenges during the financial crisis. Um, right. This is going to be – I have to assume that this was your first uh, not real test as a leader because you had had 9-11 and, and obviously others before it. But this was going to be probably the most challenging business headwinds that you had ever faced. Right. I think for 9-11, it was the emotional challenge yeah. for an organization uh, and the world, obviously, to come to grips with what had happened. But everyone was going through some form of challenge as a result of 9-11. In the financial crisis, that, to your point, Guy, was uh, the most significant business challenge because – as with some other financial services companies, we could have gone under. But I believe in a crisis, you need to look for opportunity hmm. because most people panic in a crisis. And you clearly have to focus on the situation at hand because you got to get through that. But what you also need to do is to say, what are the opportunities as a result of the crisis? And what I was committed to was that we were going to selectively invest. And I think what was very, very important is that we were in a situation where we were one of the few financial services companies that did not cut their dividend because I believe that we have an obligation hmm. to our shareholders and our investors. Right. And so we were able to come out of the financial crisis – with terrific momentum. You know, there's there's a narrative that I, I know that you are aware of, and the story is something like this. It's an oversimplification, but Amex comes out of the financial crisis and just, you know, guns blazing. Uh, around 2015, the stock is trading at an all-time high, uh, $95 a share. You, at this point in your career, are starting to think about moving on. You've got a uh, a potential uh, executive who you're grooming to take over, Edward Gilligan. And this is a year that begins a difficult two-year period for American Express. For you, um, stock price falls by almost half. You separate with Costco, which was a huge partnership. I mean, they were right. making big demands and you said, forget it. We're not going to um, accommodate these demands. So this partnership is over. And I think it accounted for like – 8% of Costco's yes. sales. It was yep. huge. Um, of ours. Yeah. Which Billings, of yours. Yeah. And of course, Edward Gilligan, the heir apparent, he he dies. He has a, a blood right. clot and, and he dies. Um, t t talk to me a little bit about that period, 2015 to 2017. Here's how I would characterize it. First, most importantly, uh, Ed was a terrific executive and a terrific person. And we'd worked together uh, for 30 years. And um, we were uh, very, very uh, good friends. And um, I would not underestimate the, the shock and the impact of that. Mm -hmm. But then we had uh, also the Department of Justice. We had a right. lawsuit there. The Department of Justice had filed against Amex for violating federal antitrust laws. You lose that. Meanwhile, Visa and MasterCard had settled with the Justice Department, and Amex continues to fight. I mean, it's like everything coming at you from different directions at this in these in this two-year period. Uh, on the uh, Justice Department case, uh, 
We thought we were right. I felt strongly about that. Um, you did not want to settle. I did not want to settle. And then, fortunately, we won at the Supreme Court level. And I was, uh, I feel terrific that we were vindicated. On Costco, I really thought about, I will tell you, Guy, I could have done a deal with Costco. Hmm. I could have positioned it very well inside the company and to our investors. But American Express would have felt the impact of that probably five years after I left. And I could have said, look, uh, I don't know what happened. My successor just wasn't doing the right thing as far as moving the business forward. And I, in fact, said to our board uh, exactly that. Hmm. Uh, We could do this deal. I could sell this deal to you. But you know me. Uh, that is not operating with integrity. I'm not going to do that. And so the important thing on Costco is people began to see signs of the progress. Uh, The stock stabilized, began to recover. As you know, it got back to where it was and, in fact, a little bit above right before I left. And I think probably Uh, there are plenty of people who are kicking themselves that they did not buy the stock at $51 a share in 2015. You got it. You got it. That's Uh, why I kept mine. And then – what was very important, we had Chase Sapphire. Which, of course, was a, a competing premium car to, I guess, kind of rival, that rivaled your, your premium car. So they, they were coming at your premium product. That's right. And the reality is people have always been coming after the premium segment. But one of the things that I had a lot of confidence in was our Platinum Centurion uh, products. And we study our competitors. But one of the things we did, which I think is an important lesson in a values-driven business, meaning that you understand what your value is to the customer, we actually further increased the value. And as we've done periodically, we increased the fee. Hmm. What do most people do when they have a competitive incursion with particularly a product that tries to imitate the existing product? You lower the fee. They lower the fee. No, if you are really a value-driven company, focus on building an enduring relationship, and you have a differentiated value proposition, that's the power of a brand. And a brand is a cluster of values, both rational and emotional. And that's what is very important about American Express is our commitment to providing real value. And so we were able to increase our fee $100, from $450 to $550, and produce tremendous results. I mean, during that two-year period, you did three things that I think many other leaders would not have done. They would have done the opposite. And and you could make the argument that that would have been the right decision at the time. Um, sure. You didn't negotiate with Costco. Um, you said... Uh, we're, we're not going to settle with the Department of Justice. We're going to fight it. The other company settled. Uh, that would have made sense. And the third thing was uh, you, when the, uh, the Chase Sapphire card comes out and the co- competitors come out, instead of lowering the price on the Platinum card, the Amex, you, you increase the price, which is actually a, in some ways, you know, it's sort of a smart psychological tactic because it suggests that there's greater value to it. So all there was. These, all three, Not suggests. There was greater there was. value. <laughs> all three of these things are almost counterintuitive, right? Like it, they, they don't 
they don't seem to come from the traditional playbook of what you do in, in, a, in a crisis. You were, proved, you were proven right in all three of the cases. But I'm wondering, were there be people around you who said, you know, Ken, are you sure, you know, we shouldn't negotiate with Costco? Are you sure we shouldn't settle with the DOJ? Are you sure we should raise prices on this card? Sure. I, I think the reality is in a leadership position, you want to make sure that you have the followership, but what you shouldn't do is in fact say, let me make a decision that is the popular one or will keep most people happy. Uh, that's not your role as a leader. You've got to do what is best for the company. And on Costco, what was very, very clear to me is I would have saddled the company with an uneconomic deal hmm. that would have had real impact. So the question was, and we talked about this very directly with my management team uh, and with the board, is that the balance here is taking an expedient way out, which sometimes is the right course of action. Uh, but what we recognized is that it would only be a temporary benefit and it would foreclose us, very importantly, from investing in some very attractive growth opportunities hmm. for the company. Hmm. And uh, so that goes to the importance of courage that I think a leader needs to have. And let me be clear, we were very fortunate. I feel vindicated by the Supreme Court in the DOJ case. But let's be clear, it could have gone the other way. Sure. Uh, and so you've got to say, what's the principle? And we're going to stand for that principle. But um, I had more confidence in the fact that we would get through Costco because that was more in our control. So as challenging as Costco was personally and for the company, one of the points that I made inside the company is we have control of our destiny. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ken, we're, as you know, we're living at a time now where folks like you, CEOs, former CEOs, um, wealthy business leaders and entrepreneurs are, are less popular um, for a variety of reasons and, and some well-founded, right? And there's incredible right. wealth inequality um, despite things like corporate social responsibility and the things that corporations do and the fact that they employ a lot of people. Um, there are reasons, I think, legitimate reasons for people to be angry at big companies in the Fortune 500. And, and I wonder in your view, I mean, you must think about this. You must read oh, absolutely. read about this and, and sort of reflect on your own, where you come from, because you come from a really modest background and you went on to lead one of the biggest companies in the world. And I wonder what how you sort of think about that and what you think needs to sort of be done differently and happen differently. I mean, the co corporations are paying lower taxes now under the new uh, 
you know, regime and, and so on. Uh, so I, I just wonder, what do you think about the, these times we're, we're kind of living in? From a corporation standpoint, it goes to the philosophy that I think people need to have is if you really want to build an enduring company, you want a stronger society. And I really believe, and part of it maybe is my aspirations growing up in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, but I really believe that corporations exist because society allows us to exist. Mm. There's no entitlement that corporations should be able to operate. So if that's the case, I think we all have a responsibility and an obligation to help improve society. And so companies uh, need to determine what their responsibility is. And I think one of the things that needs to take place is a reframing of responsibility. Look, this is not just an issue for technology companies. Technology clearly is changing the world. And I think we need a reframing of what the responsibilities are of companies. And I think here's, here's my view. Every company has values uh, that they want their people to adhere to and strive for. No one's perfect. Uh, mistakes will be made. But the reality is, I would say, simply hold the president to the same standards that you would hold someone who is on your board, someone who is in your top management, or someone who was an employee at your company. If we tolerate, and we all know in any organization, if you tolerate people who don't operate with core values, that will damage the fabric of your organization. One of the things, Guy, be useful to talk about General Catalyst. Yeah, please. Please do so. And I guess I should mention, General Catalyst is a venture capital firm that you began working for after leaving American Express. That's right. And one of the things that I was very excited about in my next chapter is I really wanted to be on the forefront with people who are going to change the world. Hmm. Uh, through technology and services. And I was fortunate that the two founders of General Catalyst, who I've known for over 20 years, they also shared, uh, we were very aligned in our values. And uh, we've developed a mission for General Catalyst, which is to invest in uh, positive, powerful change that endures uh, for our entrepreneur founders uh, our investors, our people, and society. And uh, I've loved it. I have also feel very strongly that diversity for technology companies and in the VC sector mm-hmm. has been very, very poor. And uh, that's something I'm very focused on. And I also believe that most founders – want to build enduring companies. And so I really like working with founders right at the beginning of what are the values you want to put in your company, as well as what the value proposition is that really is going to be a powerful one that's going to drive tremendous growth. And I've seen a high level of receptivity to that. And there's one company uh, that we recently invested in called Guild Education that I think has the potential to transform 
workforce education. Hmm. And so just as I believe a company, one of the things I always said uh, at, at Amex was uh, innovate or die. There's really not a choice. I'm now, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is absolutely fantastic. So, I mean, you get to Amex. What is it that you were able to do? I mean, do, do you, if you were to sort of step on a balcony and look down at all of the all of the executives, what what are some of the qualities that you developed that helped you win the confidence of the team around you to 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 put you at the at the top of the company? I really do think first and foremost is people really believe that I care about them hmm. and I want to make a positive difference in their life and that I want to win. And I want to win with values. And what was very, very important is to be able to build trust. One of the things I always say to leaders is uh, a real leader shares the credit but takes the blame. Hmm. But I would say, Guy, the, the underlying attributes are people need to believe that you can take them there. Mm. You have to offer a compelling vision, but the reality is they have to be able to trust you unreservedly, but at the same time have the freedom to question you and challenge you. Because as a leader, you need to understand that you're not perfect and you need to create a level of vulnerability and strength. And one of the things I believe in leadership in general is part of what you're doing is you're managing contradictions. (laughs) Uh, So I say to people, how can you be caring and decisive? The reality is you have to be both if you want to be an enduring leader. That's Ken Chenault, former CEO of American Express. By the way, Ken attributes his self-discipline to his childhood basketball rivals on Long Island, including none other than the great Dr. J, Julius Irving. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top, from Luminary and Built-It Productions.